I'm so thankful to be with you all this morning. Uh, this church in 2018 wants to be a place where people gather to see Jesus. We want to be a place where seeing Jesus causes us to grow as his followers, and then we want to go out into the world as people who are different so that we can show Jesus to others. Now, all of you know people right now who you wish would know the grace and mercy that you personally have known in Jesus. You know that, right? And what I'm telling you this morning is God wants to use you to help them see. Now, others of us in here maybe haven't seen that brilliance in Christ, and here we are seeking, or it's been a while since we've seen it, and we need to see Jesus again. Uh, what we are convinced of as a church, we're convinced of this, is God wants to grow us together and individually so that we see him, so that we follow Jesus, and so we go out into the world to show him to others. Uh, we believe that the calling that God has for us is to make Christ visible. And last week we began on that journey together listening to the Apostle Paul as he instructed us that God's calling for us is to make Jesus visible. Here, I want to come back to his words at the start here to remind us what we talked about last time. In Ephesians 4.1, here's how Paul puts it. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In that statement, there is the assumption that Paul makes that every one of you, all of us together, have a calling. And it is my conviction, I will be assuming this of all of you, uh, whether I know you or not, that God has a calling for you. And that calling, in a nutshell, is to make Jesus visible in the world around you. Paul, the man who wrote these words, implored those listeners. He begged them, looking at himself as a prisoner in the Lord, because he knew what it was like to be far away from God and therefore imprisoned in sin and in death. Some of us know that well. Then Paul also knew the deliverance that God brought in Christ by God's grace. Uh, Paul looked at himself. Nothing he did made him stand before God worthy. Some of you know that you stand before God only by his grace. Do you know that? It feels good when you recognize that, doesn't it? It's freeing. I don't have to make myself good enough. God has made me good enough in Christ. Paul believed that. Now, believing that, he could then implore the people he wrote to to lead a life worthy, not of God's affection, not to earn God's acceptance that was already done, but to lead a life that corresponded to the calling of making Christ visible. And that's our calling together. That's what we're going to focus on today and in these weeks ahead. How we, uh, as messed up as we are, can actually make Jesus visible in the world. Uh, Paul goes on after begging them to lead this life. He goes on to tell them what it would look like. Uh, look with me at, at how this life of making Christ visible appears. This is verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, these are the contours of a life that makes Jesus visible. Uh, patience and putting up with each other, being gentle instead of harsh, maintaining the unity, the things that really matter rather than getting divided over the small things, having peace together. The list begins with all humility. And that's our subject for this morning. And the reason, the reason that the first thing on this list is humility 
is because without humility, you cannot see Jesus. Now let that thought sink in for a moment. Without humility, Jesus will be invisible to you. And if you can't see Jesus, you can't show Jesus to other people. As long as he's invisible to you, you can't make him visible to others. Have you experienced a person who has no humility at all? Yeah. If you'd imagine that person for a moment, I'm going to tell you this. Don't start feeling better than them because now you're going to be lacking humility. (laughs) But the worst thing for that person is that they can't see Jesus. And it's the worst thing because the best thing for anyone is to see him. Whenever we see him, it's for our own benefit. And when we're, when we're uh, in a place in life where we lack humility altogether, the worst part of it is we can't see Jesus. There's other things about not having humility that are also bad. You might think, no, I've seen that arrogant, self-absorbed person. They seem to be doing great. I'll tell you what, when they're by themselves, they are not doing great. It's true. But the worst part is when, you're, when you lack humility, you can't see Jesus. And when you can't see Jesus... You can't show him to others. And when you can't show him to others, you can't be who God made you to be, which is a person who walks in such a way that you make Christ visible. That will be the best for the people around you and for you too. Let's start this morning with uh, some time on what it looks like when humility is absent. Okay, instead of trying to define it for you, I'm actually going to show you by showing you a picture of the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, It just so happens that they give us one of the most brilliant and shocking pictures of lack of humility that can be found. Okay, Use your imagination now. It's the Last Supper. This is the time when Jesus is with his friends in the upper room in Jerusalem, and it is literally the last time they're ever going to eat together. When the meal begins, the disciples don't really know this, but it begins to dawn on them when Jesus takes bread and he breaks it right there in their presence, and he tells them, This bread is my body, broken for you. He's telling them what's coming for him. Uh, He he reiterates that as he pours out some wine. And as that wine flows, he he says, "This this wine here, this is my blood. It's the new covenant sealed in my blood, which will be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. He tells them, I am going to be turned over I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed on a cross. This is the last time we're ever going to eat together. Can you imagine how heavy it would be to be at that table? Try to picture yourself there and imagine what that would be like. Uh, Then Jesus says to them, it's going to be one of you who's going to turn me over. Now, with this heavy thought in their mind, they begin to look from one face to the other, and they're starting to wonder who's going to do it. And then, with that thought in their mind, and this news that their master and beloved friend, their savior, the one they call Lord, is going to be betrayed and is going to die, with that hanging in the air over their meal, look at what happens next. This is recorded in Luke 22, immediately following Jesus' news that he's going to die on the next day. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them, as to which one of them, I can't even read it, (coughs) was to be regarded as the greatest? They're fighting about which one of them's the best. I mean, think of their thought process. Would you try this? There they are all together. Someone's going to hand Jesus over and he's going to die. They're all looking around. 
Which one is it going to be? They start to think, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not that low. And that then transitions right into, I'm better than that guy. And you know what? I think I'm actually better than that guy too. <laughs> I'm better than everybody here. That's what they're thinking. And they start arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine in this moment what it feels like to be Jesus? I mean, think about that. And what we're seeing is what it looks like when humility is absent. Because here are a group who are trying to assert their superiority over everyone else present. And that is what it looks like when there's no humility. It looks like people wanting to be better. It looks like people being concerned first and foremost about themselves and forget everyone else. It looks like someone trying to be better than the people who are their friends, who are right there with them. And I'll tell you, whenever humility is absent, whenever it's absent, whether it's around a dinner table with disciples and Jesus is there with you, or whether it's around the boardroom uh, with, with all of the corporate team there and your boss present with you, or whether it's at your kitchen table with your family or with your spouse in an argument or with your friends when, you, uh, when you're trying to figure out what to do that evening or with your children when you're trying to get them dressed to school, whenever humility is absent, there is a predictable pattern of outcome, which we see here, but which is everywhere. And I'll tell you this, listen now, when humility is absent, it's bad for you. Uh, think about what happened there and, and tell me if this doesn't sound right. When humility is absent, you compare yourself with others. That's the first thing that happens when, when you don't have humility. You are on the lookout for people around you. You are measuring their value so that you can then compare what number you give to them to you and you want to come out on top. That's what happens when humility's not there. Does anybody in here uh, struggle with comparing themselves to others? Do some of you have that experience? Yeah? Do you think you're worse at it than everyone else? No? Let's rank each other, right? <laughs> I'm worse at that. No, it's a miserable thing, right? And you might not have thought of it in this way, but I want to tell you now that the deep roots of the impulse to measure your value against others is actually a lack of humility. And maybe you haven't learned to think of humility like that, but this morning... I'm going to ask you to let your understanding of this first thing, which you must do if you're going to walk worthy of your calling. I want to ask you to let your understanding of humility expand. But this first thing happens when humility is not there. You compare yourself. And, and nobody likes that. And the second thing that is the result of this comparison, which also is always present when humility is absent, is you actually compete with the people around you. You become a competitor at heart. And what that does to friendships is it ruins them. Because in order to be friends with another person, you have to treat them like a person. But the moment you start comparing yourself, you turn them into a number, and now you're competing with them, and you've objectified them, and you can't be their friend any longer. The person who is habitually comparing herself with others will end up alone. Uh, because the lack of humility makes it very hard for you to cooperate with people because you're always competing with them. And, and if you think about the disciples, well, it ruins their chances together to serve Jesus because they can't work with each other. They're now against each other. And you see it there. But it happens wherever there's a lack of humility. You find yourself always wanting to assert your value against others. You want to establish your authority 
over others, so you push them down. You want to be better than them. You look down on them. Those things happen. You will find yourself comparing and competing when you don't have humility. That happens everywhere. This third thing that happens with the disciples is especially crucial for people who are wanting to follow Jesus to see. Okay, so if you're not there, if you're here and you're an outsider to Christian faith, uh, I want you to see what, what all of us who are working at following Jesus have to know about a lack of humility, and we need this. Uh, not only will we compare ourselves and compete, but if we lack humility, when this happens, you can't see Jesus. You can't. If you're looking down on others, you can never see Jesus. Because Jesus is magnificent in his perfection. He's the Lord of all. You can't, if you're always looking like this, and that's what you do when you lack humility, you can't see him. You see what I mean? And isn't it the most obvious thing in the world that at the Last Supper, the only way those disciples could get into an argument about which one of them was greatest, immediately after hearing that news from Jesus, is if they were 100% blind to their dear and loving friend. I mean, this is where it, it, it troubles my heart so deeply to imagine what it was like for Jesus in that moment. How many things did that Jesus have to endure? But to tell his friends that he was going to be betrayed and was going to die, and then to have them break out into an argument about which one of them was the best, how heartbreaking. And the only way they could do that is if they were completely blind to him, if they couldn't see him at all. And that is always a third consequence of a lack of humility. You can't see him. Now, uh, maybe we're not in the same place here, but I'm going to tell you, I believe there's nothing better for you than seeing Jesus. I, I'm convinced of that. To see him is the best. To see Jesus frees you from having to establish your value and worth by being better than other people, and we all need that freedom. To see Jesus takes away the sin and the shame, the things that you regret, it, it, it wipes away all of that past. And, and to see Jesus, you see the face uh, of the sovereign who smiles at you and says, I want you as my friend. I know everything behind you. I've taken it away. To see Jesus puts before you a new beginning. Listen, to see Jesus is to see the one who says, I know the grief that you carry better than you do as well as anyone could, and I'm with you in it. And I'm going to carry you in this grief. To see Jesus is to know that there is the divine hand holding you in, in, a, in a moment that you can't hold yourself. And don't you need that? I know you do. As some of you, I know exactly what it is that you need. And I'm telling you as your friend and pastor, what you need more than anything else is to see Jesus. I promise. And the rest of you I don't know, it's true for you too. To see him is the best. And here, the most important thing about humility is not that then you become an impressive person because people say, oh, she's so humble. And then, you know, your ego gets inflated and it goes away. No, that's not the most important thing about humility. It's not so that other people think you're good or great, although that will happen when you're humble. People will want to be near you. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is your eyes can be open to see him. And that's what, they're, that's what they need to be opened to. And now let me come back again to our purpose. The reason that we exist as a church, is to make Christ visible so that we here can see him better and so that we can show him to others. And I will keep saying that over and over in these weeks ahead because I'm convinced 
that it's the calling that God has for me is to encourage all of us to grow as people who, in Paul's word, walk worthy of this calling to make Jesus visible. And, and we need humility if we're going to do that. Okay, let's, let's turn now to, to, to Paul, back to Paul, uh, the one who taught that the worthy living begins with all humility, also spent time in other places spelling out what humility looks like. Okay, the disciples show us what it looks like when it's not there. Paul spent time teaching what humility looked like. Uh, it won't surprise you to know that his source for humility was Jesus. He looked at Jesus and he saw Jesus. And Paul saw Jesus because he himself had been humbled. And seeing Jesus, he taught the folks in another church in Philippi what it would look like for them to walk in humility. And what I'm going to ask you to do now is to open your mind and your heart uh, to allow this teaching here, God's word, uh, to expand your understanding of what it might look like to be a person who walks in humility. And then to, to choose to be a mature person to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I can to walk forward here. Let's look together at Paul's words. This is Philippians 2. In verse 3, Paul spells out what it looks like to be humble. Here's what he writes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Regard others as better than yourselves. Uh, do nothing, Paul says, from these motivations. Uh, Paul knows that beneath everything you do, there is a force internally that motivates your action. Are you aware of this? Do you ever find yourself uh, reacting and then saying, "What? why am I doing this? And then being aware of the fact that there's some kind of motivator inside of you that drove you to do it. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, it might not be common, but it would be good for more of us to reflect on what are the forces in me that made me get into that argument. Have you ever been in one of those arguments like, why am I still arguing, but you can't stop? Or there's something going on in you. Uh, or it could be the opposite. What is it in me that made me not speak up in that moment? I know I should have, but I didn't. Why, why do I react like that to my spouse or my friends? How come I feel like i got to tell that story about me again every time I'm in a new social setting? The one where I'm the star and I look so good? What Paul wants us to do is to grow up and to pay attention to what motivates us, and then he wants us to do absolutely nothing at all that is motivated by these two things, what he calls selfish ambition and conceit. Um, you have it in you. It might be hard to admit, but you have it in you. You have these drives in you to go forward because of these, these motivations, which shouldn't be yours. The first, selfish ambition in Greek is erethia. The word originates from the noun meaning day laborer. So picture a man working all day. He's cutting and binding wheat, or he's weaving wool, or he's pounding hot iron with a hammer on an anvil. At the end of his labor, this erethia, he comes to his boss to collect his wages. In the first century, these exchanges at the end of the workday often became contentious. Uh, it was very common in ancient guilds for the exchange to turn heated so that the one who was getting his wages began to demand, grasp, insist, maybe unjustly 
uh, to get more than he really deserved. It was so common for these uh, interchanges to turn into this kind of exchange that the noun, erethia, it stopped referring just to the worker and it began to be used to describe an attitude. The attitude where a person was asserting their own rights, their demands to get what they believed was coming to them, whether it was really theirs or not. If you work in a business where you have laborers who are demanding their pay, uh, does it sometimes turn out like this? Right? Have you ever seen a two-year-old when that two-year-old sees the toy that the three-year-old sibling has? And you think your kids are so cute and wonderful and suddenly your child, your two-year-old child is acting like a murderer? <laughs> Demanding, grasping, wanting to get, it's mine! Have you seen that? So that's the impulse here, Erethea, that Paul says, when this impulse is in you, don't do anything that comes from that impulse. This is hard, okay? It's difficult. But do you remember what I said last week if you were here about walking, the metaphor that Paul used? Walking requires progress. It takes time. You don't get anywhere quickly when you're walking. But it does require having a vision for where you're going. And so here we're going to learn from Paul. Where we're going to go is the place called humility where we, we, we recognize these impulses in us. And when that impulse is there, check your motivation and don't do it. Okay, same with conceit. The, the second motivation there in Greek, that's a beautiful word. It's kenodoxia. Uh, the word doxology, you've heard that word? Uh, that's the Greek word for praise. And keno as a prefix means empty. And so Paul here is saying, anytime you're wanting to do something for empty praise, don't do it. Uh, he has in mind the man who pretends he knows something that he doesn't know, so he seems more impressive. You've done this, haven't you? Right? You're with someone, and they're talking intellectually. Oh, you know about um, Scober, the writer? Don't you know about his uh, theories on intellectual? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love those. <laughs> I made that name up. Scober's not a real person. But haven't you done that? Pretended? Or, or he's thinking of the woman who puts on a show to try to appear that she's someone that she's not, just to get applause. Paul knows that that's in us. He says, do not do anything that comes from those motivations. Uh, you know, the truth is, anything that, any praise that you get because of this empty mask, it never touches your heart anyway. Because the person who receives praise in that way knows deep down inside that the praise wasn't for them, it was for the mask. And so they, they're just as needy as ever, except even more desperate. It doesn't work. Same goes for the grasping, demanding. Whatever you get in that way, it will not actually satisfy you at all. It would be better for you to give things away than to acquire things like that. Paul knows it. That's why he's telling us, do not do anything from these these uh, motivations. Instead, in the second half of the verse, he says this, in humility, and here's the second uh, bit of wisdom for us, regard others as better than yourselves. Now here there's uh, a need for caution uh, because we will, some of us, have the wrong ideas about what true humility looks like. Maybe we've grown up thinking that humility means you hate yourself, that you just, nothing about you is good. Uh, and then that can be added to a particular way of teaching the Christian faith that can become really toxic, that you're supposed to just dwell on how sinful and awful you are all the time. The more you do that, the more humble you are, the more God likes you. Please listen to me. God loves you. And God does not want you to hate yourself at all. Self-loathing is not humility, and it doesn't please God. When God sees you hating you, I actually think it hurts God's heart. 
And God is there present with you saying, please let go of that. By the way, that's just a subtle form of pride. He wants you to regard yourself as the beloved daughter of his, as the beloved son. He wants you in that proper way to love you. So that's not humility. Here, there's another sort of small form of humility. You know when someone's really great at something and you tell them, you give them a compliment. Hey, you are so good at that. And they say, oh, no, I'm not really that good. And we might say, oh, they're so humble. You know what they really want, don't you? They're saying, argue with me about how great I am. I love it. <laughs> tell me again that I'm good. No, I'm not that good. Please, I need to hear it over and over again. And, and listen, that's not humility. And again, that doesn't work either. It doesn't. The most successful person who gets praised, it doesn't touch the deep down. That's not humility. You know, there's another misunderstanding. Humility is different from humiliation. And you need to hear this too. You might think, am I supposed to be humiliated? And that somehow shows Jesus. No, it does not, it does not show Jesus when you are embarrassed and shamed in front of a large group of people. Have you ever seen someone humiliated? It feels awful, right? When I was in seminary, uh, in my, at the end of my first year, we had a theology class. It was magnificent. There were about 170 students in that class. Uh, and at Princeton, the place where we studied was like stadium seating. And our teacher was Bruce McCormick. He was a theological, intellectual giant. I mean, he was amazing. He's also six foot eight. But anyway, he taught magnificently. And at the end of our semester, where all of us had expanded so wonderfully as Christians, he did something that he didn't do because he was an intellectual man. He said, we're going to pray together and we're going to be open to God's spirit. I'm going to lead us. And then in silence, if God's spirit leads you, pray. Oh, it was amazing. Like the atmosphere was so alive. I remember sitting there next to my friend Darren. Uh, Darren and his wife were the, the most magnificent Christian people I'd ever known. Darren was very humble. Uh, as, as I'm describing humility, have you seen someone who's humble? Isn't it great when you're around a humble person? That was, that was Darren. Um, after the professor prayed, it was silent. And of course, some of us, I know it was true for me, I got a little anxious. Am I going to pray out loud? Is it going to be embarrassing if I do? Can you feel the tension already? Darren started doing this thing that made me know, uh-oh, something's coming. He started going like this. Mmm. Mmm. Like, oh, what's going to happen here? <laughs> and then he cleared his throat. <clears throat> and then Darren sang the first line of that song, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Do you know that song? It's a nice song, right? If you don't know the song, just trust me, it's a beautiful song. Darren can't sing at all. He can't. His wife's a great singer. He looks at her after he starts, expecting her to pick the song up so there becomes a moving event where everybody's singing together. She just looks down at the ground. <laughs> he sings the whole thing by himself. It was horrendous. He was utterly humiliated. God does not get any pleasure or joy in inviting anyone to be humiliated. God doesn't want you to go walking on your own so that you look like a miserable failure and wretch, so that you're embarrassed or ashamed. God does not want that at all. That's not what Paul wants either. When he tells the folks that he writes to that they should regard others as better than themselves, he does not mean look down on yourself. He means look up and find a way to lift the people around you. 
Stop concerning yourself with how you are better than others and find ways that others are better than you and shine a spotlight on that. Become a person in the community that you're a part of, whether that community is just you and your spouse or your family or your neighborhood or your, the place where you work or the church that you're a part of. Paul is saying, regard the people around you, look to them and say, how can I find in them those qualities that are praiseworthy, those things that they can't even see themselves and encourage them. Let them see that they themselves are good, do what you can to lift them, regard them as better. That stop, Paul is saying, stop always occupying the center of your life and let other people have that position. You know what that looks like, don't you? He says it as he continues. And this is in verse 4. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Here is where we see, I think with the greatest clarity, that humility, the humility that you're invited to walk in so that you make Jesus visible, is not, first of all, a feeling. It's something that you do. And it has to do with your eyes. It has to do with where you're looking all the time. And here Paul is saying, it's time for you to mature and grow up. Not only put away selfish ambition and conceit, but stop looking at yourself all the time. Stop caring more about you than you care about everyone else. Stop always putting you in the center of every decision. Stop making everything come back to you. And for a change, let other people occupy the center. Look at them and ask instead, what do I get from them? Look at them instead and say, what can I give to them? What do they need? What is the moment right now calling for for them? What, how can I assist rather than how can I acquire? And now I hope you see how practical this message is. Because as long as you're bumping into other people, you are being invited by God in Christ through Paul to walk in humility, to walk in a new way, to make a decision, to let the interests of others matter. When you do this, when you walk in humility, when you choose to pay attention to your motivations and, and choose not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, when you choose to regard others in such a way that you find what's good in them, when you let others' interests come first, you walk in humility, and what that does is it profoundly transforms the people who you interact with. Uh, can, can I ask you to think for a moment? Have you ever encountered a person who's humble like this and been impacted by just being around them? Have you got someone like that in your life? We all should. Uh, when I was a kid... That was my dad. My father worked really hard each day. And then when he came home from work, even though he was really tired, he would get right down and play with my brother and me. My dad let the things that we were interested in matter to him more than the things that he was naturally interested in. My father was a great basketball player. He never pressured us to play basketball. Now, that may also have been because I was only five foot two at the end of my senior year in high school. But instead of pushing us there, he let us be interested in the things that we were interested in. I loved skateboarding. I was a little skate rat. And my dad bought a video camera and he built a, a ramp for us and he videoed us over and over again. I mean, I think back on that, he must have been going out of his mind. But he let us have the center. And this encouraged me to, to feel courageous. It made me feel loved. It made me feel like I mattered. And, and now I look back on that and I think, you know what? My dad 
did that because he was humble. That's why he did it. And now every father in here, you have the, the freedom and the invitation to be humble with your children. And you can do that today. You can do that today. You do that and you'll change them. Uh, every mom in here, I could tell you endless stories about my mom, how in humility my mom loved me and cared for me and changed my life. Every mom in here, you can do that too. If you're not a, a parent, and a lot of us are not parents in here, you must listen now. All around you are younger people uh, for whom you can serve the role of surrogate mom or dad. You can do things with, uh, for, in humility and in kindness and in grace for other young people around you that their own parents can't do. You can get involved in the youth ministry here at Renaissance and serve in a way that you become a, a person who makes Jesus visible to those kids in your humility, and you'll change them if you do it. Uh, it doesn't only happen in your family. You can do it with your employees. You can walk in humility with those that you employ. Uh, you can walk in humility with others in your office where you can choose not to let your desire to promote you, to grasp, to get, to, to uh, advertise you so that you get some more. You can set that aside and instead ask, what are their interests and how can I serve them? The invitation from Paul in Philippians is to walk in humility and the urging from him in Ephesians is, listen, it's time for us to walk worthy of our calling. That is to make Jesus visible. And when we begin with humility... When humility is present, uh, this is what happens. I want to consider that now. What is, what is it when humility is present? The first thing that will happen is that you'll forget yourself. And, and don't we need to forget ourselves a little bit more? I mean, think of that for a moment. How much time do you spend thinking about yourself and your problems and the things that are difficult? Uh, it's easy to do that. Um, I can find myself getting wrapped up uh, in the afternoons here in my office on all the things about me that I wish were different or all the things that I wish could go one way, and, and it's always miserable, isn't it, when you're absorbed in yourself? But when humility is present, you, you have this freedom. You turn away, and you can forget yourself, and you can start to consider other people and what they need. Uh, that happens when humility is there. When that happens, when you start to forget yourself, then instead of always competing with others, you actually can begin to cooperate with them. And there is nothing more energizing and joyful than stepping right beside someone who needs your help in this moment and cooperating with them on the path of life, right? Isn't it great when that happens? And I'm, listen, I know that that's happening in this church because I hear some of your stories about how in humility, one of you is walking there beside another. Way to go. Keep doing it. Uh, if you think to yourself right now, nobody's doing that for me, take your eyes off of you and then find someone else that you can do that for and then start to cooperate with them as God helps them grow. It would be magnificent if more and more as a church we became a place where people were cooperating, they were setting aside their own interests and cooperating with each other. I'm telling you, if we do that, it will be good for everyone. Even if you don't have an ounce of faith in Jesus, you cooperate with people in this way, watch what happens. Here, the third thing that happens when humility is present is then you make Jesus visible. And that's it. That's the, that's the point. That's the point. We want to see him and show him. We want to be a church that makes Jesus visible. We want to gather to see him so that we grow to follow him, so that we go out and show him. And if we'll walk in humility, we will show Jesus. How do I know this? I'll, I know it because Jesus was, above all things, was humble. 
uh, here. I want you to take your time and read through the book of Philippians on your own this week, if you would. After Paul tells that group what humility looks like, he tells them, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he had equality with God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself, being born as a slave and found in human form. In humility, he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Because of that, God has highly exalted him so the name of Jesus is above every name so that at his name, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow. Jesus was humble. If we want to show him, if we want to see him, we have to get on the path of humility. Let's pray now. Let's pray that God will help us walk in that way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of Paul's teaching about humility. We thank you for the brilliant and beautiful picture of Jesus, the humble king. We thank you for the very definite guidance that you give uh, to help us see what humility looks like in your word. I ask that for spending this time together this morning, we will have grown to be men and women who walk in humility. And then we ask simply that as we grow in humility, you'd use us to make yourself visible to others. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.